This is a Federal News Network podcast. The armed services have been discharging members who refused COVID vaccines. Now, that policy has affected only a small percentage of troops, but my next guest says the policy still has legal and military flaws. Rob Capavilla is a partner in the law firm Capavilla & Williams, and he joins me now. Mr. Capavilla, good to have you on. Good to be here, Tom. Thank you. And your firm exclusively represents members of the military around the world, correct? That's right. That's right. Folks that serve our country who are facing investigation or court-martial or administrative separations. All right. So let's talk about the legalities of the COVID vaccine. People enter the military and pretty much your life ceases to be your own for a variety of good reasons. And so why is a vaccine mandate any different for a military order ordered by superior officers? In some ways, it's not different at all, right? I mean, vaccines have been around the military for a long time. There was litigation over the anthrax vaccine. But in some ways, Tom, how the Department of Defense, the military is handling the COVID vaccine is a little bit unique. And what I mean by that is if you take a look at specifically the new Army policy, they're literally saying that they're going to kick folks out for not getting the vaccine. And those folks are likely going to end up with general under honorable conditions discharges and their DD-214s are going to say separated for serious misconduct, which, Tom, is the same thing somebody would get from the military if they were being separated for drug use, domestic violence, you know, assault consummated by a battery. So essentially what the Army in particular is doing here is they are making sure that these soldiers who don't want the vaccine are being absolutely punished, and in my opinion, a little bit over punished for simply saying, I don't want to put that in my body. And, of course, that affects their ability to get VA benefits, and it could affect job prospects throughout their lives if someone sees that mark on the record. Yeah, so when somebody is involuntarily separated from the United States military and they're given a general under honorable conditions discharge, they're very likely, or at least in certain circumstances, they're going to lose those education benefits that they otherwise would have earned with their service. And when you're talking about somebody who has served, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 15 years, that's a pretty significant blow. And again, it's the same kind of blow that an Army soldier would get if they were separated for a domestic violence incident or for, you know, using and abusing illegal narcotics. So it certainly is something that is serious and can impact these soldiers for the remainder of their lives, quite frankly. Well, what happens, say, if a flu vaccine is turned down by a soldier or, say, the anthrax vaccine when that came out? Did people turn that down? And what happened then? People did. Certain soldiers did have serious problems with the anthrax vaccine. There was litigation over it. The flu vaccine, off the top of my head, I don't recall any litigation over the particular flu vaccine. But what I would say is the justification for it all is the same, right? The Department of Defense, the commander in chief comes out and says that there is a military nexus between taking this vaccine or the flu shot or the anthrax vaccine and being able to fight our nation's wars, which is a good justification. It's just when we implement these policies, I don't think these particular soldiers and airmen and Marines should be facing the same kind of penalties you would face if you committed a more serious crime. In other words, I don't think that refusing a COVID vaccination should be considered serious misconduct that's put on your DD-214 for the remainder of your life. Should it be considered in any manner? And if so, then what might be consequences that you feel would be fair? I do think it should be considered because the military is based on the ability of a commander looking at their soldiers and saying, go take the hill. And you have to have good order and discipline to do that. 
and enforcing the COVID vaccine is a part of good order discipline. I would much prefer if the position of the DOD was these folks get honorable discharges and there will be a specific policy carved out. So on their DD-214, it doesn't say serious misconduct. It says COVID refusal. This way, when these soldiers and sailors and airmen move on with their lives and they go for a job and somebody asks, you know, were you ever involuntarily separated from the military? Did you ever receive something other than honorable discharge? They can show a DD-214 that puts the alleged misconduct in perspective. Otherwise, that DD-214 just very generally says serious misconduct, which is going to hurt folks as they move on into their civilian capacities. We're speaking with attorney Rob Capovilla. He's a partner at Capovilla and Williams. And do you feel this has any effect on recruiting since the armed services are having trouble meeting their recruiting goals these days? And it seems like less and less of the population is eligible, let alone volunteering. That is, I think, at the heart of this entire matter in a lot of ways. Only 1% of the U.S. population says we're going to put on a uniform and put ourselves in harm's way and go serve our country. And we have to treat that 1% fairly. And I don't think it's any coincidence that just as the Army is moving forward with now involuntarily separating folks, that they're offering a new $50,000 signing bonus to recruits who want to join the Army. We have a manning problem. And we're losing really good people over the COVID vaccine. And I'm not saying that's not just. I'm just saying they should be a little more fair with how they're going about executing the policy. Yes, but I guess I'm asking, do you think the COVID policy itself or the vaccine policy, the medical policies are a contributing factor to the dampening of recruitment or maybe that's too much of a stretch? It's hard for me to say. I think a common sense perspective would say yes, because there are a lot of people that do not want to put the COVID vaccine in their body. I mean, they consider it toxic. So you are alienating at least some folks who might otherwise want to join who are not going to now. But otherwise, it's more of just a bad coincidence when recruitment levels are difficult and they're discharging people that otherwise could serve admirably for no other reason than they did not get a vaccine. I would agree with that, yeah. And without naming names, of course, but have you had clients come to you with this issue and what has their reasoning been and what kind of defense can you really mount in their behalf? We're getting calls on a daily basis from folks that are now beginning separated for their vaccine refusal. And I'll be frank with you, Tom, we're not taking those cases on because quite frankly, I'm not going to take somebody's hard-earned money when I already know that their religious exemption or medical exemption has a 99.9% chance of not being approved. So yeah, we get a lot of calls on it. It's impacting a lot of people. But the fact of the matter is, is These exemptions are not getting approved. They're not getting approved at an astronomically high rate. So quite frankly, uh, we're happy to talk with folks, give them the guidance that we can, but we're not taking somebody's hard-earned money for this right now because it wouldn't be right given how the DOD's treated these exemptions. Attorney Rob Capavilla is a partner at Capavilla and Williams. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you, Tom. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. 
Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So 
if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.